All right, why don't we, um, why don't we quiet ourselves, begin in prayer, allow the Lord to, um, to be with us as we begin this journey of faith. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just praise you and thank you for, gosh, all the good things you do for us in our lives, for the gift of life, for the gift of our, our families, our parents who have really placed the seed of your love and life in us. Um, we thank you for those things, Lord. And we ask that you will continue to bless us as we seek your face. We seek a knowledge of the truth of who you are, um, of your church, and that, Lord, you give us the grace and the capacity to respond to that gift of life and love, that we can respond to that with the whole of who we are so that we, we can become the image that we were created to be. That is the image and likeness of you. Um, and so be with us, Lord, send forth your Holy Spirit and help us, Lord, um, to grow and live in your love. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord, amen. <laughs> Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, well, welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, my adult confirmandes. Um, welcome to sponsors that are here. Um, you are such an important part of this. That's why I like you to be here on the first night so that I can kind of direct you to, um, to what you're called to. Um, hopefully this is, um, this is a journey towards the Lord in even a, a deeper way for you as sponsors. I think that often happens. I think that's, that's what the Lord does. He's always inviting the human element into his plan of salvation so that we can grow in his likeness and in his love. And so um, my hope is that that becomes true for sponsors as well as for the candidates um, and, um, and for my RCIA folks as well. Um, so critically important. What I'd like to do today is talk a little bit about the process. I want to talk about sponsorship, what that is, what, what you're called to as it relates to that. I want to talk about sacrament, what is sacrament, and then in particular the sacrament of confirmation. We're going to cover that again in a couple of weeks but I think it's so critical um, for you to have a clear understanding of what it means to be confirmed in the faith. Um, you, are, you are just being fully initiated into the church, and you thought you were Catholic all along. But now you're going to be fully initiated into the Catholic Church, which makes this your own. And there's, you know, there's, there's a commitment that comes along with that on your part, right? You're going to receive the ongoing gifts that the Lord continues to to make present in our lives, but then there's, there's kind of a response that we're called to in that. So I wanna talk about that. I wanna talk about where do we find the sacrament of, of confirmation in the sacred scriptures? Why do we believe what we believe? Why is it separate from baptism? Oftentimes our Protestant brothers and sisters kind of see confirmation as baptism. You know, well, that's when I choose um, to receive the gift of God. And, and that's not what we believe as Catholics, right? Baptism for us is a gift, pure and simple. It is given. We get faith, hope, and love. We do nothing to receive it. The community of faith walks alongside us and brings their faith that this is what Christ wanted for us to do. Um, but baptism is a free, undeserved gift, unmerited. Um, and, and we're given that, and that gives us really this capacity then to respond with the whole of our lives. Um, and so I'm getting ahead of myself, so I don't want to give my presentation before I give my presentation. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about sacrament, um, and then I want to talk about sponsorship. And then, um, then what I would like to do is kind of um, give you the whole picture. That is what we're going to cover throughout, 
these next seven weeks or so. And that's, that's really kind of boiled down into what we call the story of salvation history. And so I, I want to give that to you. Now, we've all supposedly learned it as Catholics, but I think very few times do we see it in its, in its entirety presented to us. This is how we came to be. This is what happened. Um, and this is where we are now um, as Catholic um, Christians, as actually people in the universe, not just, not just Catholic Christians. Is it okay? No, it's, that's a microphone, actually, in case somebody misses today. All right. Um, for those that may have just entered a little bit late, I do want to collect your, um, your donation for the book and for the meal at the end. So if you've got it today, that'd be great. If you don't, just please bring it next week. And, um, and we'll kind of go over some of the, um, the material. Then after I finish my presentation and we do the story of salvation history, I want to have some time for group discussion. Um, and we'll probably like just turn the tables around. And I've got some discussion questions that I'd like you guys to kind of have among yourselves with your sponsors present. I think that's really important. And we'll always have that time um, during our class time so that we can really be dialogue a little bit about what it is um, that we believe. Okay. So you, each and every one of you in this room, has been given a radical call and a promise. The Lord is calling you. Each of us have been called by name. We were made for the Lord. He is our destiny. I think oftentimes we have this idea that someone else is our destiny or a job is our destiny or power is you know, our destiny. This, the purpose of my life is boom. Well, the purpose of your life is actually identical. Everybody has the identical purpose in this room. And our purpose is to become one with the Lord. That's our purpose. We, he made us for himself. And the whole of our life, the journey of our life, is to actually enter into relationship with him. He is a communion of persons, and we're meant to commune with the Lord. That's what we're made for. He made us for himself. And so the whole of our lives is really a journey towards his holiness. And I think what's so sad, and this was sad for my own life, is that oftentimes we don't discover this until like we're many years into it and we've made so many mistakes. We've made so many bad decisions. You know, we've made so many bad choices. And, and I think sometimes that's okay. I mean, the GPS gets recalculated, right? And we get kind of turned towards the right priority of our life. And now we're reoriented. We're reoriented in a, in a place where now, if you know where you're going, if you know where you're supposed to be, headed for, now we know how we live the in-between pieces. And that's what's so critical. And that's what's so important about knowing who the Lord is. Who is Christ, right? What does he say about work? What does he say about relationships? What does he say about sex and marriage and babies and family and, you know, politics and, you know, all the kinds of things that you know, we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. He has, a, he has something to say about all of them. If, it's, if it has anything to do with humanity, he has something to say about it. And so we want to know what that is. Why? Because we're disciples of the Lord. In and through your baptism, you are baptized into Christ. You become a member of his church. And that calls you to something. Now, he's, he's radically calling you, and he's promising. What is he promising you? He's, a, he's promising you abundance. Right? He's... he's, a, he's promising you abundant life. That doesn't mean no problems. 
It just means abundant life. That now I have everything I need to respond well to my journey. Um, and that's what he promises you. But there, there is a catch, right? He expects your life in return. And, and the, the crazy thing is, is that the deepest desire of your heart is to give yourself back to him. Sometimes we experience, we get a glimpse of that by wanting to give ourselves to another. And love does that, right? But remember, God is love. And so when we experience love in a relationship, that's a glimpse of what the Lord wants for us in our lives. And to return everything that we are um, back to him. And that is the deepest desire of our hearts. If you think about your own life, you know that the happiest times are when you're giving yourself away without any expectation in return. Um, because that's what we're made for. We're made to become a gift. That's really what we're made for. So, what is sacrament? Does anybody remember what, it mean, what sacrament means? What is sacrament? How would you explain sacrament to someone? A word, maybe, that you think of when you think of sacrament? Um, an efficacious sign that institutes grace. Yeah, very good. So, it, so it's an effective sign, very good word, efficacious sign that affects what it signifies. So that's, that's a great definition. Let me put it into English for you. <laughs> I like that you said that. Is, is she a sponsor? Is she a sponsor? Okay, so what's sacrament? Sacrament's a visible sign, something we see, of an invisible reality that looks like what it does, and it does it by grace. So what's the visible sign, Kirsten, of baptism? The water. The water, because what does water do? Purifies. Cleans us up, right? So it's a visible sign of an invisible reality, because what baptism does is it washes away original sin. So it's effective. It doesn't just point to something, it actually does something, but it doesn't do it by magic, which I think sometimes Catholics <laughs> think there's magic that comes down from the sacraments. No, it does it by God's grace. And what's God's grace? It's his life. It's his life in us. And this is what's so amazing about being Catholic, because we actually get to commune with the Lord through the sacraments of the church, because it's his life. And so what we're made for, we get to experience when we receive the sacraments. God's life, which again is a total gift um, to us. So a visible sign of an invisible reality that does what it looks like it does, and it does it by grace. What's the visible sign of the Eucharist? So the bread and the wine, right? That's the visible sign. That's the human dimension, because God wants to communicate to us on, on, his, on our level. So it, it, the visible sign is the bread and the wine. It does what it looks like it does. What does bread and wine normally do for us? Nourishes us, right? Strengthens us. Enables us to carry on. And that's what the Eucharist does. It's his body and blood that actually nourishes us and helps us to become what we receive. Helps us to become little Christs, so now we can follow him and become what we are created to be. That is the image and likeness of God. Now, I'm going to ask my RCIAs to remember for me, what is, what is the visible sign 
of marriage, the sacrament of marriage. The bride and groom. All right, very good. Who said that? <laughs> You're not even one of my RCIAs. <laughs> so that's excellent. Yeah. So it's the it's the bride and the groom. They're the visible sign of what's the invisible reality? Christ's love for the church. Christ's love for the church. And so when when people look at a husband and a wife, they should say, Oh, that's how. Christ loves the church. And you can't love your wife or your husband the way Christ loves the church without Christ's life in you. Right? So, so the sacraments make possible what is impossible without them because they're, they're his life. So what does confirmation, what does confirmation do? What's the key to confirmation? Why are you guys coming for confirmation? Why do you want to be confirmed? One of my confirmandes, tell me, why do you want to be confirmed? Why are you here? What do you think? Uh, Zachary. To initiate us within the church. So to fully initiate you into the church, and so, so now you're fully a member, and you've said, I claim this for myself, for sure. What does the sacrament give you? Uh, the grace of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it does. And it does so through the seven gifts. You know, I, had a youth, I heard a youth minister um, once speak about this. He, he used to work here at St. Michael's. His name was Eric. And he said, you know, baptism is like a glass of white milk. And at the bottom of that glass of white milk is, is chocolate syrup, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then when you get confirmed, what happens is you get this big long spoon and you stir up that chocolate syrup and, and now you have an outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is really what happens. Because you've got everything that you need from the time that you're baptized, but you need something else, right? You need something to stir it up. And that's ongoing catechesis, um, study, the Eucharist, the sacrament of confession, all those other graces that really help us um, to respond well to the gift um, that's given to us in confirmation. So a lot of times I think it's, it is kind of confusing to think about how is his confirmation different from baptism? And so, you know, because, because okay, we're given, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism, um, and then we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit again in confirmation? Like, what's the difference and how is it different? Why are they two different sacraments? And there's a couple really great scripture verses that talk about this. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so... Here, here we see that the Spirit was given to them in, in a particular way in baptism. But now they have to receive an outpouring of those graces. And so now there is a, there is a difference here. We're going to now we're gonna lay hands on these folks and we're going to pray over them. Does anybody else know one of the signs of um, confirmation that we use? What do we use when we confirm someone? When you get poured all over your head. Oil. oil, very good. Yes, the holy oils. And so... So that's, that's important here, too, as well. So that's in, Acts, um, that's in Acts 9. If we look at Acts 18, um, 
we, we see Paul in Ephesus. We see another indication that there is a separate, a separate grace going on here than just um, baptism. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. And so um, I just like to always give you, you know, we are not a scripture alone church, right? We are not a religion of the book. We are a religion of the word. What's the difference? What's the difference between being a religion of the book and a religion of the word? What do you think? Sounds like semantics. Who is the word? Christ. Christ is the word. So we're people of the word. We don't, we don't just go by a literal interpretation of sacred scripture. Now, we, we think that sacred scripture is filled with the spirit, inspired by the spirit. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Um, but it's a gift that actually the church gave to us. Sacred scripture is part of tradition. There was not a book until there was a church. The first, the first letter that was written, um, that's the letter of, of the, to the Thessalonians, was written 30 years after Jesus ascended back to the Father and the church was established. So it's so important for us to know. And that's not denigrating sacred scripture because, of course, we hold it up, right? We stand when we read the Gospels. Um, we, we proclaim it. And everything that we believe is connected somehow um, distinctly in sacred scripture. So confirmation itself completes baptism. It completes baptism. So it fully initiates us into the church. Well, the Eucharist actually fully completes our initiation. And I know there's the folks that are in RCI are going to receive all three sacraments or two sacraments. Now, many of you, most of you probably confirmandes have already received Holy Communion. And so the original way was baptism, confirmation, and then Eucharist, right? And so oftentimes we do it baptism, Eucharist, and then confirmation. And the reason is one of our popes, which I think is a real grace, decided that, you know, I don't want our kids waiting so long to receive the body and blood of our Lord. So let's allow them at the age of seven to receive that and then we'll have um, you know, our kids uh, get confirmed at, at a later time. And that was all, all kind of instituted around the presence of the bishop. The bishop wants to be the one that actually confirms baptized Catholics. And so it kind of shows our unity with the bishop when confirmation happens that way. But we only have, you know, in this archdiocese, we have the cardinal, and then we have one auxiliary bishop and two retired bishops, and so it's really hard for him to get around to everybody um, to do that. And so that's why confirmation happens so spread out um, on the Western Church. Now, the Eastern Church that's in communion with Rome does baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist all at once as babies. 
and then at the age of seven, they'll receive their second Eucharist and, um, and teach them about that. And we've actually, some of our dioceses in the United States have restored that order. You'll hear some, some news about a restoration of the original order of the sacraments of initiation. And that's, that's what happens for folks that become Catholic. They've never been baptized. They get baptized, confirmed, and receive a Eucharist. So my whole point in this is just to say that you have not been fully initiated yet. And so what a grace, what a gift, that you're going to be fully initiated into the church and you're going to receive an outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Which leads me to another question. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What are some of the gifts? Anybody remember? Well, now these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah. So the fruits of the Spirit um, that we hear in Galatians 5 are like peace and generosity and love. Um, but Isaiah actually speaks first about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's easy to remember the gifts of the Holy Spirit if you remember what original sin did to us. Original sin basically darkened our intellect and weakened our will. So it made it difficult, after sin, it made it difficult for us to do the right thing. We have what we call an inclination to sin since original sin, right? Even if we're baptized, baptism kind of removes the nail but what, what remains? A big old hole, right? And so we're wounded. We're actually wounded as a result of original sin. So we have what we call an inclination to sin. Concupiscence is the big theological term. And so, so sometimes we're inclined to darkness. So, so our intellects have been darkened and our, our wills have been weakened. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit undo those things. So if our intellect's been darkened, what's maybe one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Wisdom. Wisdom, yeah. What's another one? Counsel. What's another one? Knowledge. Kind of sounds like wisdom. And then the strengthening of the will, we get things like courage. We get fortitude. We get fear of the Lord. Um, and so, so the gifts of the Holy Spirit help us to kind of work towards that fight that we constantly have with the flesh, okay? And so what an exciting um, thing, you know, to receive those gifts. And so what I want to kind of stir up in you is, are you ready to receive this? This isn't just like a walk through kind of this thing that we do as Catholics. There's like, there's a call and an answer that um, we're really called to. And so, so I want you to think about that. Are you ready to receive them? We're beginning to interview our catechumens and candidates for entrance into the church. Do you really want to become Catholic? It's not easy to be Catholic, you know? It, it's, you are a disciple of Christ, which calls you to something. Not to be the same as everybody else, but to be different. And you receive the graces to actually live that way when you receive the sacraments of the church. Questions or comments about that? a little bit about sponsorship. What is sponsorship? And again, I just can't thank the sponsors enough um, for, for stepping up. It's a call to be a sponsor. Um, it's actually an office in the church, sponsorship. Um, and you're, it's an office in the church because, see, the church can't sit down next to somebody in a pew. 
and talk to them about their questions or their concerns. And so we need to have somebody that actually represents the church. So sponsors need to be somebody that believes what the church teaches, loves the church, strives to live that out, um, and, you know, again, is, is a good model for that. And so a sponsor is, is a representative of the church. It's an office of the church. They witness to what the church believes by their life. And so it really does matter that a sponsor practices the faith, which is why I have that commitment form that I ask all the sponsors to sign. And so it's inside that red, that red folder, and it kind of lists some of the, uh, the attributes that the church calls a person to, and then also, again, that practice of, of the moral life. The sponsor should also be a witness to your conversion process. So all of us are called to conversion, right? So it doesn't just happen once and it's over. Every day should be kind of a movement towards, um, you know, a walk with Christ. And so the sponsor should be looking at your life and, and seeing, you know, are, are you, has there been a difference that this has made to you? That this movement towards um, a deeper walk with Christ, is there a difference in your life? Um, and then my hope is that you walk a little bit differently too as a sponsor because now you are holding an office in the church and you're called to be a representative and a witness um, and how, how is that going for you what does the sponsor do um, these are some of the things a sponsor can do I, I gave you a great little book um, a guide for sponsors and it kind of gives you a lot of ideas um, but you are certainly a guide um, a guide along this journey um, you should be sharing your faith life how do you pray? You know, how do you pray? How, you know, when you, why do you go to Mass? Why is it so important for you to go to Mass? Do you, do you substitute Wednesday for Sunday when you can't make it on Sunday? Is that okay? Or do you regularly receive the Sacrament of Reconciliation? Do you follow the Church's teaching um, when it comes to sexuality and marriage? Um, are you living that, that life fully? Again, you're a model. And then I think the other thing that's really important is that um, the sponsor's open to ongoing Christian education. It looks differently for everybody, right? Do, do, they, do they read on a regular basis? Um, are they engaged in a Bible study at church? Do they do some kind of service activity? Again, that reflects um, an obedient response to the Lord. Are they living those values that the church calls us to? Solid faith life, they include all the things that I've just said. Weekly mass is like a minimum, right? You know, this is a minimum. This is what the Lord calls us to in the Ten Commandments and then again um, in the early church. Um, but again, participation in the sacraments, a prayer life, um, daily reading of scripture, those kinds of things. And to share that with the person that you're sponsoring so that you can help to build them their life, you know. I often say, and I, I just say, you know, we really don't need any mediocre, any more mediocre Catholics. We have enough mediocre Catholics. What we need is vibrant disciples of Christ. So, you know, so do it. And do it, you know, with the vigor and, and the whole passion of your life. Um, respond well um, to the gift that God is calling you to. What a sponsor is not, and so just in case I've scared you, um, a sponsor is not a theologian, they're not a catechist, they can be, and we have a couple of master-prepared um, people that help me in our CIA, um, but you don't have to be. 
Um, it's just important that you're one who prays, who listens, who's respectful of the challenges that your sponsee may be going through, um, struggling with, and serves as a bridge. You're not trying to have somebody own your spirituality, but you want to introduce them to yours in case that might be something that works in their own life. And then actually listening to how your candidate actually um, experiences the Lord and the church and um, to learn from them as well. And then always allowing the candidate the freedom to choose. You're adults. The reason I love adult confirmation is you come here by choice to be here with us. You're choosing, you know, again, to be recatechized, to be reformed, or maybe just to be reminded about what the church teaches and believes and you want to respond with the whole of your life. Um, but to allow the freedom, the candidate, the freedom to choose that. So what is the preparation? What are we going to be doing um, over these next um, six weeks or seven weeks? Um, I, I really find that so many, we have done a horrible job in the church of forming young people. You know, we really have. Oh, since Vatican II, Vatican II was not the problem. If you read the documents of Vatican II, they're amazing. It was the, the actual teaching of those, um, or reiteration, validation of those teachings that did not happen. Um, and so I, I find that so many people who come back, they want to understand what the church teaches and why. And so I think it's so important for us to remind you of those things. If you did get an excellent catechesis, this will be a piece of cake for you, right? Um, but I want to remind you of who Jesus is. <coughs> Who's the church? What are the sacraments? Um, and so we're going to go through we're going to go through all the different dimensions of what you should have learned when you were young. I think the other thing that's always challenging too is that we learn them when we're so young. You know, we we receive our the Eucharist when we're seven, and we you know we we receive that catechesis of the Eucharist, but we do do really continue to unfold that the truth of what the Eucharist is and what Christ wants to give us in that. So. So we're going to move towards the sacrament. We're going to do so through a period of catechesis. What does catechesis mean? What does it mean to catechize someone? I heard something. A guess. Catechize means to, what do you think? Teaching? Yeah, it means to teach, right? But it, I love what it's catechesis. If you look at the root word of to catechize, it means to echo down. And it means to give back what was given as a replica. This is not my teaching. This is Jesus' teaching. And I'm just passing it on through the church. And so I don't get to include Mary Caprio's opinion on things. You know, this is what Jesus gave. And so it's an echoing down of what was first given by Christ in the church. And so um, this period of catechesis is an echoing down um, that hopefully helps you. It always helps me. I've been doing this for 12 years, and I, I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's why God placed me here, because I need a lot of help. And so um, I get to hear it again and again and be reminded of that. Um, all of you, before you're confirmed, will receive, and we'll do this at the retreat, the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Um, and so you're going to have an opportunity for um, confession. Every time we receive a sacrament in the church, um, particularly like confirmation or marriage, we should be making sure we're in a state of grace. Okay? We should be in a state of grace when we receive the Eucharist every week. Um, and, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the, the, the moral life. We'll talk about the difference between venial sins and mortal sins. 
Venial sins are those sins that harm and wound charity, but they don't separate us totally from God. And so when we go to Mass and we do the penitential rite and we say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, and the, the priest says to us, call to mind your sins, we're doing that as we're saying, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, and he's t forgiving us of our venial sins, right? Mortal sins, you know, if we've committed a mortal sin, we, we need to go to confession before we receive the Lord again in the Eucharist because we need to be in a state of grace in order to receive the body and blood of our Lord. And so, um, you know, are we, are we being faithful to that? Um, and so, so we're definitely going to um, receive the Sacrament of Reconciliation on March 21st. I'll have a, about seven priests or so here, and we'll have the group, the RCIA group here as well. And so again, we're moving towards the, the sacrament. There's a couple of options for y'all to receive the sacrament. So these are just my adult confirmandes. RCIA has a different um, process. RCIA uh, baptized candidates are going to come in on Divine Mercy Sunday, which is the Sunday after um, Easter. And then those unbaptized come in on Easter Vigil. But for my confirmandes, who are already baptized Catholic, who are going to receive the sacrament of confirmation, we are going to have that... Um, Father Wayne actually gave me the date. Uh, I'll give you the exact date, but it's going to be in June, um, and it's going to be here at St. Michael. And if that's not good for you, because I know this is not everybody's home parish, um, I will give you options, because the Archdiocese will tell me what are some of the options to be confirmed. There's some Northwest churches or some South churches that will have the bishop present. But St. Michael is an option. So for those of you who are um, you know, members here at St. Michael, um, it works great for us. And we'll have a much smaller confirmation here because the bishop that confirms for the archdiocese, he's a visiting bishop, and he stays here at St. Michael. So he always gives us the opportunity of having a confirmation here um, in the spring. And so it's a treat for us. Um, otherwise, you know, you get to be with like 500 other people uh, getting confirmed um, on a Sunday afternoon, um, but this is much more intimate. So again, I'll leave that, leave that up to you. Um, so, so at the sacrament, at the reception of the sacrament, you are making a communal declaration that you want this sacrament and that you want to be fully initiated into the church. For my, my non-Catholic folks, they actually say, they make a statement that was made for you, Catholics, <clears throat> at your baptism, but my non-Catholic folks make a profession of faith that says, I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches and believes to be true and revealed by God. And so that's basically what you're saying when you receive the sacrament of confirmation. I am being confirmed in the faith of my baptism. And so fully initiated into the church. Um, and then, of course, um, you're going to receive all the graces of the sacrament um, when you, in fact, do that. Any questions about the preparation process? My hope, too, is that it's a time where you really feel like you can ask questions. Um, that we can dialogue a little bit. If you're challenged by something in the faith, let us help you answer the question you're challenged by. The church is so reasonable. It's not just faith, it's faith and reason. They belong together. They enlighten one another. Um, and so I want, you to, I want you to just be convinced that this is the right thing. And if you're not, help, help us to help you be convinced. Every week we'll try to have different um, presenters that'll come and talk to you, give a different perspective. 
Um, we use a couple of the guys from Straight Jesuit um, that'll come and teach, and then I teach at University of St. Thomas, and then we'll also have um, our deacons come and teach, and so you get a different perspective every time. So how do we know that you're actually progressing and you're moving towards um, sacrament in a, in a positive way? Certainly attendance at your weekly sessions. I do take attendance, and so if you don't sign in, you're not here. So please make sure you always check off your, your name um, or add your name to the bottom of that, um, that list. Um, and if really, I don't allow you to miss any sessions, um, but come to me individually if there's a problem and then we'll figure out a way um, to make that up. Um, you know, weekly mass is a given. If, if you're not going to weekly mass, I'm just not sure why you're here. I, I'm not sure why you're here. Um, and so missing mass is actually a mortal sin. And you know, nobody says that anymore. Nobody says that. You know, it's, it's a mortal sin. It's, it makes us. Mass is justice that's due to God. He's given everything we have, we have received, even our capacity to receive it. And what he wants back is an hour of our time on Sundays. And so it is a very serious sin, not because God needs us to be at Mass, but because we need to be at Mass. Um, and he wants us to do it on Sunday, which is his day. Um, and he wants to commune with us. So, so this, is, this is just, uh, just again, the minimum. Um, and then, again, I just really want to encourage you to re-engage or to intensify your time of prayer, whatever that is for you. And if you want some, some suggestions on that, you know, ask me or ask some of the other speakers or ask your sponsor, how do you pray? How do you pray? Do you spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament? Um, do you spend just quiet time in the morning? Do you thank God at night? Do you do that review of conscience that we're all called to do at the end of the day? Because if you don't do a review of conscience, how can then you then prepare for like improvement the next day? Because that's our call, right? The journey, we've recalibrated our GPSs and we're headed towards the Lord. So how are we going to do that? I got to look at my life and I got to look at it truthfully. Where have I? Where have I not met the challenge? Where have I met the challenge? Where have I done well? Where have I loved well? Where I share my time and my talents and my faith. Um, very important. And then lastly, you know. I'd be shocked if you didn't have an issue with something in the faith or challenged by something in the faith. And so, again, I just encourage you to, um, to, to share those with your sponsor, with me, with anybody else so we can help you um, to move forward as it relates to that. What are the requirements of a sponsor? Just to make sure that um, everybody that's been called to be a sponsor um, is allowed to be a sponsor. Um, certainly, um, a sponsor has to be in full communion with the church. They have to be confirmed. Um, Catholics. Um, they could have been baptized in another faith denomination, that's fine, but as long as they're fully initiated into the Catholic faith, it's important. They're practicing their faith, as I've already said. They must at least be 16 years of age. Um, again, you know, the minimums that I've already described. Um, somebody that's married is fine to be a sponsor, but they must be married in the Catholic Church. Catholics are obligated to be married in the Church, and so if they haven't been married in the, in the Catholic Church, then they're out of communion with the church. And that's actually not always known by people. Sometimes I'll have sponsors come forward and they'll say, but I'm not married in the church. I'm like, well, gosh, let's get you married in the church. Like, this is not a hard thing. Like, let's fix that, you know, and get you married in the church. Um, and so that's, that's really important as well. Um, somebody that's cohabitating um, is not an appropriate sponsor. 
um, because they're not living fully um, the gift of sexuality and love that's called for with a Catholic Christian. Um, questions about sponsors? So confirmation completes baptismal grace and the Eucharist completes Christian initiation. And then just some um, suggestions, and you'll find many more in your book um, that you can do as a sponsor. Um, these are just, again, um, basic pray daily for your confirmande um, by name. Attend meetings with them if you can. Like I said, you're, you're um, welcome to do anything that you do. I want sponsors to be involved if they want to be. Call them, encourage them. How's it going? What'd you learn yesterday? Questions that you have, you know? Invite them to attend Mass with you. Go to Mass together and then go out for breakfast and talk about, you know, what do you think that was about? You know, lousy homily, good homily. Um, what should he have said? Um, what did he say? Um, encourage them to ask questions about things they're concerned about. Invite them to assist at your ministry programs. Because again, my hope for you as you become confirmed and fully initiated in the faith that this again calls you to ministry, calls you to serve. You know, at the instant Mary was, was told she was going to be the mother of God, what did she do? She went in haste to the hill country to serve Elizabeth, her cousin, who was pregnant, right? Like, that's what we're called. You're, you're being called, you're going to be confirmed, and now you're going to seek to serve. Because now you've got the graces and the strength to do that. To love well, to serve well. Um, and then again, don't try to persuade them to necessarily adopt your form of spirituality and trust in the Lord. I think that's the hardest thing. He really does the work, but we have to be available to be his hands and feet as we make our way. Make sense? Questions, comments, concerns? So in your, um, um, in your booklet here, um, there's the commitment to serve as a sponsor. If you could please put the name of the adult confirmande there, because otherwise I have 20 signed sheets and I don't know who it's for. Um, and then at the bottom of the page, you're going to also um, have the name of the sponsor, signature of the sponsor, email address, and phone number. Um, and then please tell me where you're a practicing member. It's not St. Michael. Real helpful. And then your um, schedule is in your right pocket of your folder as well. And then just... Um, What's, what's here in the back, in, inside these two folders? It's additional information about all the things we're going to be covering. So the catechism is awesome. You must all have one. Please read before you come. It's going to help you to understand what we're talking about as we talk. Um, but then each of the four pillars that we're going to be covering um, of the church are just kind of given some additional information here. Like, for example, under the, the pillar for Jesus Christ. Um, did Jesus know he was God, you know, from the very beginning? So, and there's like little articles that kind of address different questions. Questions about Our Lady. Do we really believe that, you know, Mary was conceived without sin? Why do we believe that? We're going to cover that in class, but there's some, there's some adi additional um, information that you might find helpful. Um, I also find that whenever I'm... Um, in a class, if I don't have a folder, um, all those papers end up in the back seat of my car instead of um, in a place where I can get to later. And so this gives you a place to put some of the papers that you might receive as, as you're going through the process. Okay.
What I'd like to do now is show you a video on the story of salvation history. If anybody needs to take a break, bathrooms are down the hall. Um, you can get up, take, do a stretch. I'm just going to set this up now. Um, trying to take longer than five minutes. There's bathrooms downstairs too. I'll make more coffee next time. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started on this. Um, so again, I'm kind of giving you the whole story now that we're going to be breaking down as we go through each of our classes. I think it's very helpful to see the story in whole, but again, this is a story of God's never-ending love for us. And so it's how it all happened, how it began, how things got messed up, and then how the Lord has made things right again. Each piece is like a page from a great book. 
and they come together to proclaim the story of salvation in which we are called to participate. For example, pilgrims entering this basilica are greeted by statues of the Twelve Apostles set in the very pillars holding up the basilica. This symbolizes how these men are the foundation of the church Jesus Christ established. Above, artistic depictions tell the story of the Old Testament, from Adam to Jonah on one side, and the story of Jesus from his baptism to his resurrection on the other. So as pilgrims walk down the main aisle, they are walking through salvation history. And as they look forward, they see behind the main altar a mosaic of Jesus' face, a key focal point for the whole basilica. Here we see that it is Jesus drawing the pilgrim through the story of salvation, drawing them ultimately to the altar for worship, where he comes down to meet us. In churches like this one, pilgrims for centuries would go near to the main altar, where they would kneel down and recite the Christian creed, the summary statement of the faith. And when they would do this, it's as if each would be professing the story of faith proclaimed in this basilica is my story too. Because God himself has given us this life and is providing for us 
and all of our lives together make sense together. And, and there's a purpose, right? There's a plan. There's a point to life. Today, the trend is more um, very isolated. I'm an individual. Um, you're an individual. We don't really have much in common or to share. In fact, even in my own life, yesterday doesn't really matter. Tomorrow doesn't really matter. It's not really connected. And uh, if you really buy into that, if you really subscribe to that kind of philosophy of life, what happens is we find ourselves in despair because life then kind of seems pointless. Where is this all going? Nowhere. What's the point? There's not one. Uh, what's the meaning of life? Nobody knows. And that's real reason for despair today. We find people living that out. But the truth of the matter is that God himself is providing for us. God has a plan. And when you understand that God is all-powerful and all-loving, and you put those two things together, you come up with this new word called providence, that God made us and is with us and is going to provide for us. And the whole of history is really moving towards this goal, which is hopefully heaven, right? Life in Christ forever. So tell me about the story. How does the story begin? Uh, well, our, the story is interesting because it doesn't have a beginning, because the story begins with God, right? Who doesn't have a beginning. And really the whole story is about God's never-ending love. Um, but let's just start by saying there's two things about God that are really critical here to understand the story properly, and that is, first, God really is God. Like, he really is higher than our highest. Like, my father's favorite saying is to be, Scott, just remember there is a God, and you're not him. <laughs> now, that's a pretty good start, right, for understanding who I am in, in the whole order of the world. Um, the second thing to remember about God is that God is love. Right? God is actually a communion of persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what we call the Trinity. God, in, 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 his, in his very nature, really is um, self-outpouring love and a communion of persons. And then God wants to share that love right, with the human person. And so he creates the human person in order to share this love with us. Right? And when he does that, he creates, really, our first parents, right? Adam and Eve. And um, that's his plan, is to create us as a family through Adam and Eve. So we were made originally in union together and in union with God. What happened? Yeah, so, so exactly, we're created. He creates Adam and Eve in a way that, that they can be in this beautiful harmony. They're with God. They're in right relationship with God. Life is ordered. And they know God with their mind. They really know him. And with their wills, they can, they can fairly easily uh, follow him. But something happens, and that is that they're tempted. They're, and they're tempted by Satan and all the fallen angels, right? Because God didn't just make the human person, he made angelic persons. Some of the angels decided not to follow God, and until the end of time, those angels are really seeking our ruin, and they were, they were seeking the ruin of Adam and Eve. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and they decide not to follow God. Right? They give in to the battle. And when they do that, that harmony, that beautiful relationship is destroyed. Adam and Eve destroyed it. <clears throat> they could know God. Now it's harder to know God because sin makes it harder to know God. They could they could follow God with their with their human will. Now it's going to be a lot harder to follow God with their human will. So when Adam and Eve fall because they're our first parents, this sin and the damage of sin is echoed down to generation to generation, even to today, where as you know, you and I really sit in this cosmic battle between good and evil, being tempted by Satan not to follow God. And there's this uh, church language that's used to describe this reality of, uh, of how we've been wounded because of Adam and Eve's first sin. That's the original sin. What, what is that? Yeah, so, so this original sin, this first sin that Adam and Eve um, contractually by not following God, it echoes down and we all inherit this because we're all a family under Adam and Eve. 
in what is sometimes called concupiscence. It's just a, kind of a fancy word, concupiscence, which s simply means um, we have an inclination to sin. So you can see now we're in some trouble because it's harder to know God, it's harder to follow God, the communion that we have with him and each other is, is blown apart, and we're easy targets for Satan because we have an inclination to sin, and so Satan now has set up this situation where he has a certain in on us, or he has a certain easy target on us. So this isn't anything really you know, uh, extraordinary. This is something else that, this is like every human person experiences, you know, that we, we may have a sense of what's right, but sometimes we're not sure. Not clear to us what the right thing is. Sometimes we may even know what the right thing is to do, but we don't do it. You know, I know I should get up at a certain time, or I know I should be kind or patient, and I'm not. I'm not kind. I'm not patient. Uh, that's the reality every human person faces, and that's all a result of all that you're describing here. Now, the beautiful thing is that God knows this. And remember, the whole story is really about God's never ending love, and God sees the battle. He knows what happened to us. We're his sons and his daughters. He sees us wounded. He's not going to leave us out on the battlefield alone. So when, when God approaches Adam and Eve, even in the garden, even as they just sinned against him, he's just a generous uh, God, a God of mercy and grace. And so he approaches them and he tells them right away, I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm, I, I am going to send my son. Uh, he promises immediately that he's going to send his son really to destroy this, this, this death and to really uh, restore us, right, to his life as sons and daughters of God. And today we're living in the middle of the story and the story is continuing. Uh, in our own lives. Yeah, and we, we have the same choice that Adam and Eve had. We have this loving God who's revealing himself and wants to have communion with us, and we have Satan, and we have the fallen angels, the demons prowling around, seeking our ruin, and we have to remember that, that there is a story, and we're in it. And every decision that we make is either a decision closer to God and closer to heaven, or uh, closer to sin and closer to death and eternal damnation. And the modern world would like us to believe, you know what, there is no story, there is no good and evil, and there is no point. And that's the same lie that Satan wants us to buy into. with God, 
but that harmony with God spilled over in their own relationship. So there was great unity within the human family. So originally, the human family was the united family of God. But then, Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God and refused to give themselves as a gift of love. And as a result, they hurt their relationship with God. In fact, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve turned away from the presence of the Lord God. But their sin also hurt their relationship with each other. The Bible shows us that after they sin, they start blaming each other. They don't trust each other. There's tension in their relationship. So sin breaks our relationship with God on the vertical level, but it also hurts our relationship with each other on the horizontal level. So in the end, we see that God's people, far from being the united family of God, have become a broken human family. Nevertheless, God has a plan. And we see him in salvation history gradually gathering his people back. He works with key leaders in the Bible, people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And this great plan reaches its climax when God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and offer that perfect gift of love that restores us to the Father. And the Son sends the Holy Spirit to fill us with his very life. But Jesus doesn't want to save us individually, separate from each other. We've seen throughout salvation history God drawing people back to himself to restore unity on that vertical level, but he also wants to draw people together in unity on that horizontal level. That's why Jesus establishes one worldwide church that gathers all humanity back into the one family of God, this universal church or this Catholic church. In fact, the word Catholic means universal. For 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has been faithfully handing on the teachings of Jesus Christ and through the sacraments, the graces he won for us on the cross so that we might be equipped to live like him, to live that total self-giving love that we were made for from the very beginning so that we might be with God forever in heaven. Now, let's take a closer look at this story of salvation as we move from creation to the fall redemption in Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church. God first announces his plan of salvation in the Garden of Eden, where he announces that one day a Savior will come to redeem all of humanity. So God begins his plan of salvation with this enormous vision, but he also starts it very, very small with just one couple in Adam and Eve, and then that expands to one chosen family with Noah and his family. And then the plan of salvation expands to include one chosen tribe with Abraham and his whole tribe. And then it expands to one chosen nation with Moses and the whole people of Israel. Then finally it expands to one chosen kingdom with King David and his heirs and the kingdom of Israel. Now all of these Old Testament stories are brought to culmination and fulfillment in the life of Jesus, who comes as a new king to establish a new kingdom that is the church. And the church is meant for the salvation of the entire world, not just anymore one family or one tribe or one nation, but the whole world is invited to share the salvation which Jesus brings. If I had to pick just one story from the Bible that could unlock for you the rest of salvation history, it would be the story of Abraham. In the story, we see how God gives Abraham three promises that really serve as a table of contents for understanding the rest of the Bible. So if you know these three promises given to Abraham, you'll understand God's plan of salvation very well. In these three promises, we see 
how God wants to use Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, as his instrument for bringing blessings to the rest of the world, gathering the nations back into one covenant family. Let's take a look at those three promises and see how they unfold in Israel's history. First of all, God promised Abraham that one day his descendants would become a great nation. That promise is fulfilled in the time of Moses. Moses takes Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, out of Egypt and brings them to the promised land. They become a nation ruling over themselves. The second promise is that Abraham was told by God that one day his descendants would become a great kingdom. Kings would come forth from his line. They're not just a nation, they're a kingdom ruling over other nations now. That becomes fulfilled in the time of David. David establishes the kingdom of Israel and, and expands the borders of Israel. They begin ruling over other nations. His son Solomon, in fact, starts teaching the pagan nation the truth about the one true God. But God has even bigger plans in store for Abraham's family. They would become not just a nation, not just a kingdom, but they would become one day a source of bringing blessing to the entire world. And we see this third promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of God, comes to die on the cross for our sins, to establish his church, and gather all nations back into the one covenant family of God. God's whole plan of salvation comes to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. God become man. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to the world to, to redeem the world from sin. God did not just send a messenger or an angel or a prophet or a healer. He sent his very own son, who's divine, so that we might have new life. Now, Jesus saved the world. He preached the kingdom of God. He preached repentance. He did many miracles and signs. But he also suffered. He died on a cross. And God raised him from the dead so that we might have hope of new life, of eternal life with God in heaven forever. So why did God become man? Well, it's very simple. We, as sinful human beings, broke God's infinite law and therefore incurred an infinite debt to God that we were not able to repay. So Jesus, as God become man, can represent us as a man, but also has the ability to repay that infinite debt that we incurred as God. So Jesus, on our behalf, pays the debt of sin to God through his crucifixion and death on the cross, and uh, offers us new eternal life through his resurrection. So how does Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully human, redeem us from our sin? I'm going to tell a story. I call it the story of two gardens. And let's go back to the Garden of Eden, where we had Adam, who was the Son of God. And he was in the Garden, and he was in perfect communion with God. But then he faced a test, a temptation, and he proved to be unfaithful. He disobeyed God. And that led ultimately to him being banned from eating the fruit of the Tree of Life, which meant he lost total communion with God. But now, centuries later, we find ourselves in another garden. And this garden of Gethsemane, we find Jesus, the new Adam, who's not just a man, but he's fully God. And Jesus is facing this enormous test. And that enormous test is the crucifixion the next day. And he has a choice to either obey or to not obey his father. But Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane has perfect obedience. He says three times, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And his perfect obedience leads to the crucifixion, to the cross. And the early church fathers, they called the cross the tree. Why? Because Jesus Christ crucified, because he's fully God and fully man, becomes the new tree of life. 
So what we see here is Jesus, the new Adam, is canceling out the disobedience of Adam. And once again, through the cross, through the new tree of life, restoring us to full communion with God. During his earthly ministry, Jesus not only proclaimed the kingdom of God, but he established the kingdom of God in his church. He appointed 12 apostles to be his successors, to proclaim the kingdom of God throughout the world, to make disciples, and to baptize people. The apostles handed on their authority to the bishops, and the bishops to their successors down to the church today. So the church takes on the mission of Jesus, the mission of proclamation, of baptizing, and of making disciples in every nation and every generation, constantly expanding God's plan of salvation to include everyone in intimate communion with Christ. We've seen how God's plan from the very beginning was for us to be united with Him and united with each other. But sin has brought division into this world. We are a broken family of man, but God has been gradually gathering His people back, and this plan culminates when He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to gather us all back into one covenant family. That's why the apostles proclaimed one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one church. And the church is the reunited family of God. One of the things that we will be judged on at the end of time is how well we live this unity with Jesus. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. Everyone will be judged on the basis of what they've done, on their, on their deeds, whether they've chosen love of self or love of God. And by this judgment, Jesus will usher in the final stage of the kingdom of God. The time of unity between Jesus and his bride, the church, in an everlasting union of love. Every day we make choices, and those choices are either going to lead us closer to God or farther away from Him. And every day, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit through His church that we might live out our lives in accordance with His plan and make the right choices so that we can live with Him forever in heaven. Our ultimate destiny in Christ is eternal life in heaven with Him. And each and every day, Jesus is inviting us to walk with Him. He's inviting us to experience this life and this salvation that he desires to give us. But we, every day, have to cooperate with that grace. We have to invite that life of Christ into our own lives. And when we do that, and when we walk with Jesus Christ, we experience the fullness of life and love that he desires us to have with him forever and ever. If we consider all we've explored in today's session, we can see there are three major parts in the story of salvation. First, Creation. God, who is infinitely perfect and happy in himself, freely created man to make him share in his own goodness and love. Man and woman were made in God's image, made to know and love God, capable of giving themselves in love. Originally, man and woman had unity with God on the vertical level and harmony between themselves on the horizontal level. Humanity was the united family of God, reflecting the unity of God himself. Second, the fall. Man and woman sinned. They disobeyed God and refused to give themselves in love. This sin broke our relationship with God and broke the harmony between man and woman. This original sin also brought death into the world and wounded our human nature, making it difficult for Adam and Eve's descendants to know the truth and do the good. We all now have an inclination towards sin, an inclination called concupiscence. Third, redemption. God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, offering on our behalf the perfect gift of love that restores us to the Father. And the Father sent the Son to send the Holy Spirit to fill us with his very life. 
But Jesus didn't come to save us individually. He established the universal Catholic Church to gather the broken family of man into the united family of God. The Catholic Church passes on the teachings of Christ and through the sacraments dispenses the graces he won for us on the cross to equip us to do the good we find so difficult to do, to enable us to live like Christ, indeed to live in Christ, so that we may be with him forever in heaven. Now, let's take a look at how we live this story in our daily lives. Curtis, we've been hearing about this great story, God's plan of salvation, and that we have a role to play in the story, but what does that really mean for us? Well, first of all, I think it's so great to be Catholics because we understand not just the stories, the small stories that are in the Bible, but we come to understand the giant story. And as we read that and recognize life has meaning and purpose, then something even more amazing happens. And particularly when we encounter the Gospels, we start to meet Jesus, we encounter him in the Gospels, and he invites us into the story. We start to realize that we've been invited to write the most recent chapter in salvation history. That actually what's going on right now is part of this giant story, and we're not just spectators. We actually have roles to play. We actually are, have a, a role to play that's so vitally important that if we don't do that, if we don't respond, the world is poorer because of that. And so that's the exciting thing to recognize. God has such intense meaning and purpose for your life, and he's been writing about this, and you have a part to play in all of this. What does this mean for me just daily to say, you know, the way I live my life will will make a big difference you know, one way or the other. What, what, what does that mean just in terms of my desire to live the story day to day? Well, first of all, let's c compare and contrast that to the rest of what the world is saying. The world is saying your life really doesn't mean anything. You can do whatever you want because you're, you're not that significant. So play hours of video games. Waste time all day long. You think about the noise, the iPads, and the iPhones, and all these things. And again, not knocking uh, Apple, but it's distracting. There's noise in our ears. There's visual images all around us, and it gets us distracted from the from the story, from salvation history. Recognizing we've got this role to play, vitally important. You can't kill time without injury and eternity. There's this deep sense of what we do with the moments of our life every day makes enormous difference. And if we could see that, it would change the way that we would live and act. A lot of the brokenness that we see in the modern world, how, how much would you say that's due to the fact that the, the modern world has lost the sense of, of life being a, a part of this larger story? Well, I think it, the, those who are experts in this would say that one of the fundamental characteristics of our world is that there is no sense of narrative in our lives at all. Um, modernity kind of teaches us, as we said before, you can do whatever you want, which really means you have no relevance whatsoever. Go ahead and do whatever you want because you have no part to play. Your choices don't matter. They don't matter. You don't matter. Your choices don't matter. I mean, you would never say that to somebody. You know, you would never say that to the President of the United States. You'd never say that to a soldier who's coming up the hill, and you know, all of a sudden you're coming up the hill against the enemy, and all of a sudden you do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. No, I need you right now. And for us to realize that we have a desperate need, God has made us to depend on one another. And the way we become reliable in those relationships is to live the way God Wanted, wants us to live, has called us to live, and the way we do that is to be in union with him by meeting him in prayer, by talking to him on a regular basis, by receiving grace through the sacraments, and then going out and making the decisions in day-to-day -day life with the heart of a hero, because there really is a drama at play, as it was in the book of Genesis and Exodus, in the, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there is right now, in, in our lives, a drama playing out, and our choices make tremendous difference in the way things play out. How about you personally? This idea that you you are part of a larger story. 
Uh, how do you practically put this on? Like, what are the ways you find yourself making decisions and realizing, wow, I, I better make a good decision to be a part of, of, of the story, to be a hero in the story? Well, the interesting thing is that when you realize that you have a, a role in this story, even though the role compared to that of Jesus is a much smaller role, it actually gives dignity to your life. I know in my own life, all of a sudden, everything made more sense. Everything was more important because I realized I was playing a, a, even a small part, but a small part that's irreplaceable in the greatest story ever told. And I, I think of a friend of mine who called me up one day, was very excited that, that she got a new job, and she, that she was went on and on the new job. I said, well, what exactly are you doing? She said, well, I'm gonna keep opening mail. I'm thinking, why would you be excited? But she had been hired by the President of the United States to open mail. And because she was part of something much bigger, even though her role seemed somewhat insignificant, because it was attached to something so amazingly important, well, the president's job is really important, but it's nothing compared to the role of Jesus Christ, his person, everything that he's done. And for us to realize we have a role to play, and it's direct service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, means that I actually have to try to bring my A game every day, all day long. I fail all the time, but when I'm recovering from those failures, it is the reminder that Jesus Christ has invited me to live in union with him, and that I'm part of a project that he's leading. And so it really has changed the way that I, I, I live in my marriage, the way that I raise my children, the way that I, I do my work, and even the work that I do of working in evangelization with college students. All of these things have been guided by this invitation to be part of something far greater than I am and finding my dignity in that. This reminds me of something I've heard you talk about before, which is a, a great reflection that a Catholic saint named St. Ignatius of Loyola once gave about what he calls the two standards. Could you explain that for us? Absolutely. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, was calling a generation to recognize how important their lives were. And at a certain point in time, he's asking us to reflect in the midst of his retreat on the meditation of the two standards, or two flags. When armies would come into battle, one side would come in and they'd have their flag and represented their nation, what they stood for, and the other side would have theirs. And essentially, he says, look, the world's in the midst of this cosmic battle, and there are two kingdoms at war. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light and goodness and mercy and truth, and the kingdom of the devil, which is the kingdom of, of warfare and hatred, of every that opposes everything that Christ stands for. And you and I, every person, we get to choose which side we want to fight for. And so imagine those two flags, and you're standing there before Jesus Christ, and he's saying, you pick. You want to fight for me, or you want to fight against me? And that's the decision, that's the dignity that each one of us have to be able to make that decision. Staring Jesus Christ in the eyes and say, I'm with you, or being honest enough to sit back and say, I am not with you. Don't live in the middle where we, we pretend it doesn't matter. No, that's to waste and, and misunderstand the whole meaning of life. That's the power of the narrative of salvation history, to recognize that's the choice we should make. And every day we make decisions, we make choices in our nitty-gritty daily lives that lead us to one banner or to the other, one flag or the other. Yeah, I mean, there's a simple uh, principle that we've got up on our refrigerator, and it's just kind of a progression of thoughts. It's sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Our, it all begins with how we're thinking. What are we thinking? The choices we make. Our eternal destiny is determined through a series of events that begin with thinking rightly. And that's the gift of knowing the story. It really is the paradigm, the way of looking at life that allows us to see things accurately so we can have the right thoughts and make the right choices. Okay. We went a little bit over. I talked way too much. Um, so we're, we're about five minutes um, before 